Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. First Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple? Look at the person next to you and say, did you know that? Okay, good. Your body is a temple <laughs> of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, as you have the Spirit from God, and that you are not your own. What on earth does that mean? That just sounds sort of religious, doesn't it? <laughs> For you have been bought with a price, therefore, here we come, glorify God in your body. Now, we've been having fun with the word glory. At some point, I'm going to get back to the little opinion series uh, that I've wanted to preach for two or three years. A couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I think. It might have been last week. I don't recall. We went over just a shotgun blast of this word opinion and how the word opinion is at the root of the term glory, glorification, glorify. And just go back and see that. But But simply put, as you come to the New Testament... The New Testament original language is Greek. That term is doxa, doxa, like you get doxology from, okay? And, and by the way, or, or orthodox, which means right thinking. Now watch this. Orthodox, if that term, at the root of the term doxa is the opinion, orthodox, right thinking, then means this. I have right thinking based on the right opinion. And that is the word of God. So when it says here, glorify God in your body, he's saying your body should be the place where the full expression of God's opinion resides, shines into and out through. Everybody got that? My, my body is a place where the opinion of God will be manifest. That's just a wonderful thing. He intended that from the Garden of Eden. We talked about that, I think, last week. I, they run together for me. I can't imagine how it is for you. But where Psalms chapter 8 says that, that he crowned them with glory. And that translation can say just a little lower than God or a little lower than the angels. By the way, someone emailed me a question about that word. Is it lower than God or lower than the angels? The word used, I think it's verse 5 of Psalms 8, is Elohim. Elohim, H-I-M. Well, most of the time when you see that I-M on the end of a Hebrew term, it's a plural form. And Elohim is the term that refers to just spiritual beings, but then it is used also to refer to God as the preeminent spiritual being. So that psalm can fairly be said, he created you just a little lower than God or just a little lower than the angels. Either way, how many know when God created us, he created us uniquely to be the place where the full expression of his opinion in us, to us, about us, and through us would be manifest. That is God receiving glory. In other words, there's no greater expression of worship than responding to his full opinion. All right, now let's keep going. I mentioned that today begins, you see it in your notes, the celebration of Passion Week. Today is known as Palm Sunday. They laid palm branches and coats and, uh, on the ground. This was similar to a king that would be entering and in, in conquering the, the submitting people or the conquered people would do this. Now, if you go on to the bottom of your page two, you can see the information in greater detail. I'm, I'm not going to go into that, but I'm, uh, I'm giving it to you so you can get the background. Just look at it real quickly. This, this was in the minds of the people because 
uh, the, uh, um, oh, what's the first, who cares, Maccabean dynasty, one of the Maccabians, they were able to push the Romes out or Roman oppressors out for a brief season, and that, back in history, this guy was regarded as a Messiah, and they did the same thing. They laid down palm branches for a conquering king to come in. Boy, you know, as I tell you these little things, there's so many things about God's word I want to say right here on a Sunday morning uh, that, that are misnomers in our faith that we read and we miss. And I just passed an important one. Uh, Pastor Rhea, remind me in worship in the next couple of weeks to talk about um, the return of the Lord in Thessalonians and how that coincides with Psalm 24, the entry of the king, and Palm Sunday. Just That's important because here's the deal. Let me just say it this way. I'm I'm just going to throw it out there and leave it hanging. That by the time you read Psalm 24 and then the passage in Thessalonians that we quote so often, you know, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Um, And uh, that literally in worship, watch this, we have the ability to invite the presence of the Lord, please listen, with with a same spiritual force, not... I see, I've got to use this word eschatology, end time. Not with the end time reality. In other words, as we begin to worship God according to Psalm 24, Thessalonians says this great king is going to come back. And what that actually talks about is us going out to meeting him and ushering him in. Did you know that on any given Sunday, as we worship the God two chapters before Psalm 24 and Psalm 22, God, you're enthroned. Your king is enthroned. We invite him, usher him into the center of all that we are. In every worship service, watch this. See, here's the cool thing. At the end of the age, when we usher him in, he will have the last and final word. But until then, as we come here and in Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up your everlasting door, that the king of glory can come in. Did you know this? Watch me. For those of you who think your life is crazy and out of control, we get to invite the force and presence of the king in a very similar spiritual manifestation that will happen at the end of the age. He shows up in this place and he said, I'm the king that's come in and I want to remind you at the end of the age, the fullness of it will come. But right now in that situation you're facing about that job, that relationship, that matter of illness, I'm not waiting to the end of the age to be the final word on all things. I'm the final word on your life right now and nothing else has the final word but me. Did you know that that's what happens every time we gather for church? There is a little mini second coming of the Lord. I know I've just chased another rabbit and confused everybody. Look at the person next to you and say, he's going to stop now. Just forget about all that, okay? But when I read by those and I read by these things and I see this picture, Scripture is so cool, you need to read it. Matthew chapter 21, a sort of a lengthy passage of Scripture full of great stories. When they had approached, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village opposite you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and you will find a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Okay, that's Grand Theft Auto. All right? Go there, you'll find. He doesn't even say. Now, in another passage, or actually, this is one of the Gospels. He says, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and and immediately he will send them. I just drove through the parking lot here this morning before I parked. Everybody was here, and I got to drive through. There's an Escalade out there. 
that I think God has spoken to me about, Jeremy. <laughs> yep. And I'll be standing by it. You know who you are when you leave. And I'm just going to tell you, the Lord has need of it. And, <laughs> and I'm confident you'll hand me the keys. Has anybody thought about that? You know, at go, not only go steal the guy's car, but steal the little convertible next to it. You know, um, <laughs> Go get the big donkey, the little donkey, and if they say, what on earth are you doing? The Lord has need of it. Oh, okay. I mean, I just love this story. Okay, I don't, don't even have anything good for you there. Well, the principle is when God tells you to do something, you do it. Even if it seems really stupid, say amen. Okay, here we go. Uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And in years past, I love going back to Zechariah 9 because that's what's being quoted here. Powerful. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold your king coming to you on gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. There's another verse we read by loaded with stuff that we don't even get. See, because the conquering king would typically come in on a horse, but here he comes in on the donkey, gentle and peaceful. Now, Revelation tells us at the end of the age, when he comes back, he won't be coming on a donkey the second time. He'll be coming on a horse. Okay? Now, the disciples went out and did just as Jesus instructed them, brought the donkey and the colt, laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and the others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are making a declaration of kingly uh, descent, that he descended from David. And so this would ultimately be what got him killed because of this proclamation that he was a king. And so the local scallywags there would ultimately appeal to Rome and the, 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 the overseer from Rome and Pilate and say, this guy is saying he's the king and anybody who does that dies. So that's, that is the ostensible reason. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple. Watch. Straight there. Jesus entered the temple, drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were... Did you catch that? When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said, do you not hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, yes. If you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. But he also said, if I stop them, the rocks will cry out. This is a powerful story. And probably, you know, each year as I come to it, I sort of kick myself because it's deserving of probably three or four weeks of examination because there's so much here that hinges on or Old Testament prophecies hinge on. You see in your notes there the palm branches and the problem is the king, uh, a king rides horses, not donkeys. Now, so uh, go to page three if you would. On Palm Sunday, he was headed to the temple. He would enter and potentially declare the faith that you are being given is a ripoff. Now, I read to you at the beginning, holding your thought, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we now are the temple. The Old Testament temple was intended to be a place through which the glory of the Lord, see, glory of the Lord, the full expressed opinion of God 
however it can maybe experience your was to be released. And it was the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year, the high priest would go in. Blood would, the blood of a lamb would be sprinkled on that. And then uh, uh, the Lord, the Father, God the Father, would be enthroned in some radiant manifestation of glory, um, just radiating out. Uh, once a year, they got to do that. It was into that temple that Jesus walked, but this wasn't the first time that Jesus did this. Please listen to me, ostensibly, and it's bugged me for years, that the first and last public ministry of Jesus Christ, and and I always get an email when I say this, said, no, in John chapter 2, the first ministry was the wedding at Cana. It wasn't public, it was private. That was a private affair. The first public ministry of Jesus was he walked into the temple, he turned over all the tables, similar here, drove them out, and, but he makes this statement. He said, this won't be a place. He says, you have a place out there for business as usual. Beloved, the house of God, when we come to worship, is not a place for business as usual. It's the place where we've come to encounter God. Now, why is Jesus so upset? It says he overturned the table of the money changers and those who were selling dove and sheep and whatnot. Now, what happened is that during this time, that in John 2, it was also Passover week. It was the first Passover they would celebrate. You can read the passage there. It, as a matter of fact, it's here. He would come into the temple, and what would happen is that the Jewish people who had been dispersed would make journey long, hundreds of miles away, and they would come, and often... The expense and length of the journey would have them coming in for this Passover week, uh, and to, to as they would come in, um, and, and they would bring animals for sacrifice for atoning and whatnot. They couldn't bring them that far, or they would bring the creature in, and they had inspectors who would expect their creature, their, their lamb, their dove, whatever, to see if it was spotless in keeping with the law. And if not, it was not satisfied, and they would have to buy one from the temple. It was really a scam. I mean, if you think the televangelists of today are bad, these guys had it going on, okay? Come here, you know. All you got to do is give me, I give you a, this animal. And, there's, and, and the stories about what potentially happened would go on and on. But largely they were being ripped off. Some years ago I said, Jesus walks into this, wherefore Jesus. Now, please listen to me. There's a passage of Scripture. This is not in your outline. In Luke chapter 10, where the disciples went out, and when they went out preaching the gospel, they came back and said, Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And he said, that's nothing. I was watching. It's a past, present, and future all in one. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That statement is one of the only little glimpses we get into Jesus being aware of his, if you want to say it this way, his godhood, okay, of his divinity. In other words, Jesus in that statement says, before I even came here and took on flesh, I've had encounters with this guy in the spiritual world. Now, that's an important statement as, as we come uh, to this reality because it tells us that Jesus carried with him a full consciousness of all of his, see, I'm making up words because even theologians don't have a good one. They call it the hypostatic union, and it's like, great, what does that even mean? But Jesus was fully aware of his godship. We get that? So the task of submitting to the Father was greater than anything we'd ever experienced because at any moment, Jesus could have just been Jesus himself, 
and said, I'll forget that. I'm going to do my own thing, but he doesn't. See, that was the problem with what the Bible calls the first Adam, calls Jesus the second Adam. And Jesus didn't make the mistake of the first Adam. He said, I'm submitted to the Father. But, beloved, I want us to get this understanding that Jesus carried with him a full consciousness of everything. Now, what does that mean? That means how many ever thousands of years before in the opening chapters of Scripture where Scripture says they came to walk, they heard the sound of him in the garden at spirit time. I believe it was the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that every day walked with Adam and Eve. And I can build an extensive case for that. And you say, well, why is that even important? Here's why. Because the last place that was built for worship alone was called the Garden of Eden. The last place he built, the first place he built was a place called the Garden of Eden. The second place he built was this temple. And Jesus is standing there on that day and saying, only just a second ago, I was standing at the east of Eden and I saw them ripped off by a lie. They were deceived. Did you know the word deceived is an economic term? It means alone you can never pay back. That's in Genesis 3. He said, I watched them ripped off and talked into something, and I won't stand for it again. This is the second place the Father, the Father has built for a place of worship. I walked into the last place on the last day, and they were deceived, ripped off, and convinced of something, and it won't happen again. Now you get out. But that's not the only statement being made. Because you see, the lamb would do the same thing at the end, and he would weep before he got there. Why? I believe he went into the second time, and, and, and of course, he wasn't the high priest, so he couldn't go to the Holy of Holies. He'd get to this court. He'd get to this plate. But I believe that he looked on and said, in just a couple of days, I'm going to be back. I'm going to be back right there. Right where? I'm going to be back right in front of that curtain right there that separates the holy of holies that separates the wholeness of God from the profanity of my brokenness, despair, and sin. I'm going to be back. And when I'm back, that thing's going to be torn right in two. Nobody's going to be cut off. And none of the coins you're trying to sell is going to be worth anything. Why? Because you can't pay for your redemption and you can't buy your wholeness. Jesus purchased them both. Every place we go to look and find that ability to, to find our wholeness somewhere else. Jesus' first public ministry was cleansing the temple. Uh, matter of fact, you'll see in John 2, verse 22, that when he says, you can tear this down and I'll raise it up. And they said it took 46 years to build it. But he was talking about the temple of his body. Now watch it. There is a temple, temple, physical building. There is the temple that Jesus was referring to his body. But then he says, just like me, I want you to know that you are the temple. And in you is a holy place where only holy can reside. And you will only be made W-H-O-L-E. Listen to me, to the extent that you accept H-O-L-Y. I want us to get that, okay? <clears throat> First Peter chapter 1, verse 17 if you address his father, the one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. I love that phrase. Hey, while you're hanging out there right now, let, let, let me tell you. Uh, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. I, I, I need to come back and explain why I use the fear, word fear, but i got to move past. Knowing that you are not redeemed, here it comes, 
You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited by your forefathers. You know what he's he said in there? He says, you can't pay for your redemption. But with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. Only once a year could they go behind the curtain and sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb on the mercy seat. And can atonement be made for the people of God? But the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, as he enters Jerusalem that second time three years later, and as he heads right straight for the temple, it's as if to say, you don't have enough coins to pay for it. I'll be the final payment. And nobody will pay a penny after that. And I think his passion just overtook what he was fully aware would happen. I want to move right ahead to the verse I just said, Luke chapter 23. This is Jesus on the cross. And it's what I just said a moment ago. It was now about the sixth hour. Darkness fell. Do you understand this is only just days? Days. A handful of days. Five or six days after what we call Palm Sunday, when everybody celebrated his entry. Oh, isn't he awesome that he was then nailed to a cross. So he's there. It was uh, the, the darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. Watch, in every English translation, that I'm every original, there's no sentence break. It's the same sentence. Because the sun was obscured, that's the word for eclipse, and we've talked about in the past about how it's translated failure in the previous chapter. It's only used a couple times in Scripture. The veil of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, his father into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Look at your outline with me. The final payment made, the veil was torn, access granted, you can come boldly. Do you get the idea that when he entered the temple just a few days before, he says, you guys are ripping people off trying to get for pay for something, and you're cheating them. He says, not only is this going to stop, I'm going to let you know in just a few days that veil is going to be torn in half, and there's never going to be another payment, another lamb that will need to be sacrificed. I will be the last sacrifice. I will be the final payment. And Peter says it right there. We've been redeemed, not with money, not with stuff, but with the blood of a spotless lamb. Would you look ahead with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. What does that mean? Therefore, invite the fullness of God's opinion and expression to the very center of your life. In the next chapter, a book of 2 Corinthians, one we study here a lot, he says, I want you to understand the goal of the Holy Spirit. Everyone look at me. When John says the word, Jesus Christ, the word, but there is a double intention there, that the word of God became flesh, it means a couple things at once. It's referring to the Son of God, that he became flesh and dwelled among us. We call that the incarnation. Did you know the incarnation still happens? You see, The incarnation was the spirit of God moving on Mary. Jesus became fleshed, and the word of God was born among us. But, beloved, do you know the Holy Spirit's still doing the same thing? The Holy Spirit, according to 2 Corinthians 3, writes the word of God on our heart in mystery. And what happens? We begin to be transformed, what? From opinion to opinion. 
please get this. You can read that big Bible book if you have one on your coffee table. People still do in the South a lot. You can read the one online. You can read the one you're holding in your hand. But until the words come off the page and are written on your heart, incarnation doesn't happen. They're just religious words on a page. But when we say, Father, I didn't come to just read them on that page. I asked that you came to embrace, I came to embrace the full mystery of how the word now will become flesh in me. And that's when you write it on my heart. That is when I am so imprinted by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that I begin to believe nothing but the word of God, even if I have no evidence to the contrary. Because it's been written on my heart, it leaps over my mind. Because it's been written on my heart, it defies my my circumstances because it's been written on my heart it changes my opinion even when my mind wants to disagree because the glory of God the opinion of God is pushing back anybody ever done that where you got an attitude going on and you're just about to do something and all of a sudden it's like something grips you and instead of doing that really stupid thing you're about to do, all of a sudden the word of God comes to mind out of your lips and you speak it and say the words that Jesus said in the wilderness. No, it is written. Man will not live this way. I will not live that way. You can't buy me and I'm not for sale. For you have been bought with a price. I don't know, 30 years ago I wrote a song. It was sort of like a, I guess, more of like a, Drew, you'd like it, a southern-like rockabilly song. I don't write many of those. This is day by day the things I, you face, I face are always working on my mind. They want to buy my soul, make me out of control, and put my life in decline. They say, go on and take a chance and do the devil's dance. Come on, won't you roll the dice? Until I look them in the face and put them in their place and say, I've been bought with a price. And the chorus says, I'm not for sale. No, Jesus owns my soul. I'm not for sale. I'm under his control. I've been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. Satan can't prevail. Nothing's ever going to own me again because I'm not for sale. Second verse, my brother's over here. You say it's all around you. All it does is hound you, trying to own a piece of your life. You think you can't resist it. Oh, how much I'll miss it. And I love, you must be out of your mind. I'm telling you, this thing will own you. It's deception that it's shown you. So don't even think twice. What? Your body's not your own. You've been Jesus' blood atoned. You've been bought with a price. Look at the person next to you and say, you're not for sale. When are those words important? You see, the trip to the temple on Palm Sunday is so much bigger than these little fleeting things we typically attach to it because Jesus is walking through their chair and they're celebrating that he could be the king, but his eyes are fixed. His eyes are fixed on where he started at the beginning of his ministry. He said they still have broken worship. Beloved, his eyes were fixed on one thing. Worship got broken at the east of Eden. It's broken in the temple, but it won't be broken after the cross because my body will be broken to pay for them to get back to a source of worship and they won't need to bring silver or gold or a lamb. I will be the payment. I will be the lamb. I will pay the price in my blood. That's the faith we walk in. And because of that, you have the economic force 
to step up and when the adversary says, hey, look, come here, come here. Well, let me just share with you something real quick. First Corinthians chapter 5. It's not in your outline. I'm just sticking it here. Uh, Hannah, I sent that to you. I hope you got that text message right before I walked out here. Watch this. Paul writing. Remember, 1 Corinthians 5 comes before what chapter? Difficult Bible quiz. You got that. 1 Corinthians 6. The reason I mention that is we just read 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, for you've been bought with a price. It starts here. Probably 30 years ago when I came across it, I got to meet with a, uh, sit next to, in, at dinner next to a, a Greek scholar. His name is uh, Oliver McMahon. And I was studying this, and I said, oh, and so we didn't know each other, but I seize any opportunity to sort of be a, a biblical vampire and bleed them dry before I leave. And, uh, and I said, see, because it's actually reported there's immorality. The word immorality comes from the word pernemi, porneu. We get porno from it. And he said, oh, it means, oh, oh, got it, means all that nasty stuff. Here's the problem. The term originally is an economic term. And originally it meant to export for sale. Over time, if you go do the study on it, it's fascinating. It came first to describe a female prostitute who, as she exported sexual favor for sale to a buyer, over time then it came to describe, watch this language, both the, the, the seller, if you will, and the purchaser of immorality. So not only the prostitute, but the man who purchased the sexual favor. And here's the language used. Here's the, here's the language. I forgot which, which book, it, which uh, uh, the lexicon this is from. But it says um, that ultimately this came to describe both the seller and the purchaser. Watch. As they both sold themselves to the act. So watch. That which they sought to buy bought them. Can, can anybody get what I'm saying? Now, I'm not picking on you guys, but it was your fault you stood up. There's not one of my brothers sitting right there that won't tell you the thing that they bought that they thought would bring them wholeness purchase them and enslave them. Everybody got that? What I thought I was buying turned around and bought me. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. See, but Jesus comes in and he says, I got my eyes set on something. I'm going to fix the whole economy of a broken system of worth. I'm going to purchase the opportunity for your wholeness. I'm going to pay the price. You can't buy redemption. You can't purchase wholeness. Now, why, why am I saying that? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, there's another segment that I, I sent to you, uh, um, and I think it starts at verse 12. I want you to watch this, okay? It is actually reported there is MRI, that's verse 1. That next segment of verses I sent to you, I think starts at verse 11. If not, I can get it here real quick. Did you get that? Okay, watch. Now, please watch. I can't deviate to talk about this brief list of things. This list is expanded on in chapter 6, verse 11, by the way. But I'm, by the way, what we're about to read is actually a philosophy of ministry for New Hope Church. Ready? Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a dial, excuse me, idolater, reviler, drunkard, a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Let's keep going. For Oh, I think it's the verse before. Go back to verse 10. Do you have that up, sweetheart? Can you do that? Right, okay. What he's telling, he says, remember where he opened? It's actually reported there's immorality among you. If you go home and read it, uh, and when I make this statement, 
It has to do with a man that was sleeping with his father's wife, with her stepmother. or the, They don't, don't know the story behind it. We don't have any more details because we only have one half of the letter. But he says, whoa, wait a minute. He says, actually reported there's immorality among you. And then as he writes to the Corinthians church, he's not even upset with the guy doing He's upset with them because they're not dealing with it. Did you know that that's happening in the church right now? We sit quietly while different things make their way in the door, through the door, and start to offer an alternative worth and violate the gospel. I will not sit quietly for that. It leaves people without redemption. Enough said for right now. But then he clarifies, and here's our philosophy of ministry. I, by, he says, by the way, I did not mean at all about associating with the immoral people of this world or even with the covetous swindlers or with idolaters, for uh, then you would have to go out of the world. Watch what he's saying. He said, listen, you need to be in touch with the idolaters, swindlers, drunkards, addicted people, adulterers, broken, hurting, devastated. What, I mean, the list goes on and on. It's not intended to be equipped. He, said, he says, what I'm talking about is, go to the next verse, please. But I actually wrote not to associate with any so-called, and that's important, brother. Did you know that this is sort of the final phase of dealing with sin that has a grip and a stronghold in the life of a brother or sister? Where you look them in the face when they look you in the face and say, well, I believe that my Christian faith can coexist with this identity or this value. And then lovingly, with great holy hesitation, we hold up our hand and say, if that's where you are, then you've drawn a line, not me. And I can't because if I continue a relationship with you, it reinforces that what you're doing is okay, but it's not. You've violated the deepest aspect of our faith. You're seeking to buy something. Watch this because it says immoral person. When he's so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, what does that mean, a bought person? Listen to me because we don't separate fellowship. Matter of fact, on any given week, Somebody in New Hope is sinning, probably more than 100. You're not laughing. Do you know we do, we do that? But it's like, uh, I mean, technically, is it not? Is not breaking the speed limit a sin because you're failing to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? It's a sin, right? Okay, if that was the truth, I wouldn't be able to have fellowship with my wife any given day. She really believed she was born to be in NASCAR. Okay. It's fun, but she's a sinner. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've looked over at the speedometer and said, listen, you need to pull over on the side of the road. I can't fellowship with you anymore. But you see, you get what I'm saying? So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person that looks you in the face and say, listen, I've bought into the idea that this given express, whatever it may be, can coexist And what we don't know is because I've bought in, it turns around and it buys me right back. And that's where I come into a point of conflict. Because Jesus said, you're not for sale. You've been bought with a price. That's why he lands in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Beloved, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 uses that conspicuous economic language. But that same language of economy, watch, buying and selling in the temple, it all sort of converges. So I want to tell you about this. At the end of it all, it's about worship. On Palm Sunday, here's what we're celebrating, a Savior that moved through the initial recognition. He makes his way straight to the Holy of Holies. 
And in this convoluted study this morning, trying to shift together pieces of a mosaic of Scripture that begin in the Old Testament, they explode in the gospel, and they're unpacked and strategically implemented in the writings of Paul. And today I've come to make the simple pronouncement that I did at opening, because the great deception every day that we'll face is that there's something I can see that the two traps, the two traps we fall into. I can pay for my redemption through this list of religious things. I'm going to get up, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, that's good to do. I'm going to give tithes and offerings, that's good to do. I'm going to make sure I go to church, that's good to do. Matter of fact, I'm going to be even more spiritual than the spiritual people there because I'm going to actually get there on time instead of 10.15 when the heathens show up. It's a joke. It's just a joke. See, we can develop these lists of things and Jesus, but the moment that we make that devastating mistake that because I've done this list of religious things, therefore I am more saved than you. Oh my. And we failed it. That's one of the extremes that I can now pay for my redemption through my religious discipline. Or on the other extreme, I can look at one of... Let me go ahead and do this and get in trouble. I'm going to read you one other verse of Scripture. You know what? I came here with a very shallow and singular purpose this week, and that was not to preach for an hour. No one's laughing, so I guess... uh, Listen to this. On further, he says, um, verse 9 of chapter 6, he says, it's continuing, same letter, just a few verses later, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, these are acts of immorality. See, once we get the idea that immorality is not just a violation of a moral code, but in a spiritual world, Immorality is where I present myself to the devil, step up on the auction block, and say, how much will you pay? Can I insert something right here that's also not in my notes? Did you know the single greatest recurring thing? Let me finish reading this list. The single greatest recurring Watch. Adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When I read that verse of Scripture, people will be upset because I read it and just read the language. But, beloved, every one of those things, and that list is not complete, it's just a starting list, is a place where I go to try and purchase my wholeness. Every one of those. And what happens when I try to purchase my wholeness through making a deal with sin, I get way more than I ever bargained for. Because it has the power to buy me. I don't own it. It owns me. We've heard all the little jokes and statements from preachers through the years. Well, don't worry. If you let the devil in the passenger seat, it won't be a while, but just a short time before he takes over driving the vehicle. I've heard all those little anecdotal things. And they're really powerfully true. Because what I think I'm about to buy from my own wholeness ends up purchasing me, watch, for sustained emptiness. It never has the power to make me whole. Did you notice the language 
Listen, in Matthew 18, several weeks ago, we studied on forgiveness again. Remember what happens at the end when that servant doesn't forgive the other one? The Lord comes, the great Lord says, you should have had mercy on him like I had mercy on you. Now, you threw him into prison, so I'm going to sell you and turn you over to the torturers to be tormented. Did you know when you fail to forgive, you step up to the devil's auction block and say, I'm for sale. And God throws up his hands and says, and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm not telling you you're going to hell. I'm telling you you will live under torment. That's basanizo means to be tormented by the tormentor until you finally realize that what you thought you could buy, revenge, has, has turned around and purchased your very soul. And the tragedy of the end of that story in Matthew 18 is once I'm sold into that watch, it puts me in a place where mercy can't reach me. Oh, there's no such place. Read your Bible. It's scary. What you thought you could buy will turn around and own you every time. Bitterness, unforgiveness, that list that's there. You see, we don't just pick a list of favorite sins. God says there's places that still want to tell you where you can find your wholeness. But again and again and again, as is finally realized on the cross, we come to the joyous revelation. I can't pay for my redemption, and I can't buy wholeness. I can't pay for my redemption, and I can't purchase wholeness. Beloved, next week on Sunday morning, I hope to present a gospel message that leaves those brand new listeners who will be with us on Easter Sunday coming to terms that they don't have to buy their redemption. It's been paid for. In all the places, watch this language. You ready? We in conversation says, well, what do you want to spend your life doing? It's, it's sown into culture. What do you want to spend your life doing? So I can ask this question as we prepare for Easter. Where are you spending it? Where are you spending it? The worst case scenario is every time we go to spend it in the wrong place and buy a thing, I want to say again, the ultimate destination is it has the power to turn around and own me. But the cross crushes that. The cross crushes that. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.